Well, yesterday uh, we had about 30 men uh, enjoy the sunshine, and I'm excited not only to be here to tell you the tale that we survived, but to preach the sermon. So uh, uh, very grateful. We had an awesome time. There were only two uh, two falls yesterday uh, that were unintentional, and then there were those who were pulling people off the rafts uh, uh, that just happened to happen uh, afterwards. But uh, uh, it was a great time and so excited to be here. And so when you look around and see those who are glowing, uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, and uh, yeah, we all were inspecting each other's farmer tans. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. In the past, I had mentioned, uh, especially in our equipping hour, that when I was a pastor working with high school students, there was a phenomenon that occurred every year in the youth group. There would be uh, some juniors or seniors in the group who would come to my wife or I and be confused, uh, be hurt, and greatly disappointed. And what had transpired happened every year, but they didn't know that. And what that was is friends from even as far as elementary school, junior high school, uh, at the church, uh, as they got older, decisions were made. Eventually, one of, one of the friends would be captured by Christ and want to pursue Christ, make convictions for Christ, and they would actually make completely different changes, choices, different values, convictions. And the other friend would kind of be coasting along in neutral, kind of passively not in or out, kind of wallowing in the gray. Then eventually, sometime in the junior-senior year, uh, that other friend would start making decisions. Their conversation would change. Who they started hanging with was different. And the one who was sold out would then go like they had in the past, where they would each be iron sharpening iron, each calling each other to be uh, right with God, this time, though, when they would go to their friend and say, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you making those decisions? All of a sudden, the response was not what it had been before. And statements like, Who made you my Holy Spirit? would be said. Or, Why are you, Mr. or Mrs. Uh, Goody Two Shoes, uh, why are you in my business? And all of a sudden, what had been going on for years of friendship, a bridge that had been there, all of a sudden that bridge is slowly disintegrating and walls are being built. And then students would come and say, what's going on? Because they didn't realize the dynamic that was occurring. But as a youth pastor, it was very obvious what was happening. And it happened every year. The reason I mention that is that's exactly what we're going to look at today. 
in Scripture. We, uh, in the past two uh, sessions that I spoke, we looked at a passage at the end of James chapter 3, where James provided one of 13 self-tests where the Jews who were in part of the diaspora, they had been persecuted in Jerusalem, and so they had, they had fled out into other parts of the Roman Empire, and they were parts of local churches. And, and James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing to fellow Jews who are in these churches, and he's challenging them, are you in the faith? And he's giving them 13 tests to evaluate themselves, take the pulse, and say, am I in or am I out? The last section that we looked at, the question that James was asking his audience to consider is, who is wise and understanding? Who fears God and avoids evil? And there was also uh, in the text there kind of an unspoken question, and it was, which wisdom do you embrace? Do you embrace the wisdom of God from heaven, or do you embrace the wisdom of the world that is natural and demonic? Today, we're going to look at James chapter 4. It's kind of a well-known passage But again, the key is we have to keep it in context. James is talking about a church. It has Jews and Gentiles in these churches. And James is particularly talking to those who are uh, Jewish. And he's challenging them, are you in the faith? And so as we look at this passage, we have to realize that he's talking about Uh, not just Christians, but non-Christians. And in fact, in this passage in particular, I would say he's speaking specifically to non-Christians. Why would I say that? Verse 8 of chapter 4, if you want to look there real quick, you'll see that the, uh, the response that James calls them to take when they realize that they are living the way that's described in verses 1 through 5, he encourages them Uh, He calls the sinners to clean their hands. You sinners, clean your hands. The word sinner there is only used for unbelievers in the whole Bible, New Testament. Jesus said, I came to call the righteous, or not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the word that James uses when he calls this audience of his to respond. And he uses a word referring specifically to unbelievers. So this is not a letter like many others that's just talking to Christians in the church. And that's an important perspective. So the challenges that are here, I think he's referring specifically to unbelievers. But if you know Christ, these issues we struggle with. In Christ. And the response is the same. You know, when I have people uh, say to me, well, are they, were they a Christian before or not? And, and I just say the response is always the same. Whether they were a Christian before and they've kind of wandered or they've never made a decision for Christ, the response is the same, right? Repent. It doesn't matter where you were. The key is today, Repent. So let's dive in on the passage and see what James has to say 
to the churches and what he's calling them to do. Why they and the uh, uh, the the question that we want to look at today. Uh, the previous passage is who is wise and understanding, and which wisdom have you embraced? The three questions that I would say James is raising here in this passage is, who's your friend? Who's your friend? And in essence, who has captured the affections of your heart? And which friend are you willing to offend? Which friend are you willing to offend? And as we go through this passage, you'll see why those three questions are essential. James 4, chapter 1. I'm going to use the complete Jewish Bible translation here because it best represents what I think is the uh, Greek translation, uh, especially in verse 5. And so we'll, uh, I've got it up on the screen for you uh, so that uh, we're all on the same page on this passage. Verse 1. What is causing all the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it your desires battling inside you? You desire things and don't have them. You kill and you are jealous and you still can't get them. So you fight and quarrel. The reason you don't have is that you don't pray. Or you pray and don't receive because you pray with the wrong motive, that of wanting to indulge your own desires. You unfaithful wives. Don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you suppose the Scripture speaks in vain when it says that there is a spirit in us which longs to envy? James has a lot to say. And uh, it would take literally three or four messages to unpack this properly, but we're going to do it in one. And so here we go. The first point that he wants to make very, very clear is that sinful desires that wage conflict in our hearts cause church conflicts. You ever wanted to know why there's church conflicts? Because remember, James is writing to a church and he says there's conflicts among you. So he's not talking about your marriage, which this applies. He's not necessarily talking about your family, which these principles apply. He's talking about the church. And there's, there's conflict occurring in the church. And he's saying, do you know why it is that there's conflict in the church? And most people would say, yeah, I'd be happy to tell you. See that woman right over there? <laughs> so James is asking the question, then he answers it. He says, isn't it your desires battling inside you? Very important. Notice the geographical location of the conflict. Your tendency is, and the world will tell you, that the conflict is people outside you or the circumstances that you're in. 
if I just had different circumstances. Now, I know there's many in this room that can relate. Here we go. If I only lived in Idaho, it would be a lot better. <laughs> it's the circumstances in L.A. here. It's, 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 it's the family that I'm living next to. If I just was living somewhere else, conflict would go away. According to James, that's not true. When our kids are disobedient, they don't make us angry. You ever caught yourself saying that? You just made me mad. And we justify the rage that we just poured out on our children. You, outside of me, made me make a decision and act in a particular way. That's not true. That's a lie. But there is a second thing that we need. Uh, uh, actually, we already covered that. So James is wanting to show in this passage there are three internal heart motivations that drive our sinful behavior. He wants us to know it's inside of us. It's not outside of us. For example, our children, if they are disobedient, they're being disrespectful, dis, uh, defiant, whatever, that provokes us, but it doesn't make us. I choose to respond based upon, because what, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I can produce that kind of fruit regardless of the circumstance. Is that not true? When Jesus was, had a hood put over him and they're hitting him with sticks in the face, they're whipping his back, and, and when they say, prophesy, who hit you? Did he have to get angry? He didn't. He chose to love you and me and die on the cross. In the same way Christ chose to be obedient, submissive to the Father, chose to uh, love, so can we. That's a fruit of the Spirit that's inside us. So what are the heart desires where the real conflict comes from? The first one that he talks about that we want to look at is uncontrolled desires. In verse 1 there, again, it says, What is causing all the quarrels and fights among you? Notice he's saying, what's causing it? What's, what's the source? Some translations say cause, some say source. What's the source of this? And he doesn't mention people. He doesn't mention circumstances. He says, isn't it your desires, and if you have the NASB, your pleasures, battling inside you? This word uh, that can be translated desire or pleasures is the very same word where we get the, the idea of hedonism. So if you've ever studied uh, Greek 
uh, mythology or uh, history, what have you, uh, or you've been a part of psychology classes or whatever, uh, or philosophy, a hedonistic philosophy is a view that whatever, well, actually, uh, Nike's got it pretty good. What does Nike say? Just do it. If it feels good, just do it. That's hedonism. That's this word here in this verse. It's your pleasures. It's your desires inside of you that are out of control. And you are gratifying them even at the cost of causing conflict. Isn't it any wonder that when a married person decides to gratify themselves outside their marriage covenant, that there's a conflict that occurs? It's natural. Because when there's desires that are out of control, they're not within the bounds of God's law, conflict is natural. It's what's going to happen. This passage says that it's our, our pleasures, our desires inside us, that wage war. Notice that. That's, a, that's quite a word, to wage war. It literally means to serve in war, to be a soldier, to go at war. It literally means in the context here that the sinful desire inside the person is literally warring against their soul and their conscience. Their conscience is saying, you know what, I know this is, we don't like to say this word in America, inappropriate. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I worked at a psychiatric hospital where if you ever used the word wrong or sin, you'd be fired. You're to say it's inappropriate behavior. And then I always would ask, so who defines what's appropriate? They never had an answer for me. See, when you say sin, by definition, God defined it. That's why we don't use the word sin. We don't like to call it wrong. Because then we're saying there's an absolute standard. So when a person has these pleasures that are driving, the reason it's waging war is their soul and their conscience is saying, you know this is wrong, even though they're not a Christian. They know it's wrong. Yes, no. You know, it's like the the two angels on the shoulders, right? Go for it. You deserve it. Uh, You're the one. You the man. Uh, and the other one's like, oh, I wouldn't go there. No, that's, you have no idea how far that's going to go. Uh, and it's this battle waging in your soul. But even those who are not Christians can't get away from the consequence of violating their conscience. Notice what it says in Romans 2. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. Accusing them when they know they violate their conscience and defending them when they know they do what their conscience said. 
Even Gentiles who don't have the law know what is right and what is wrong. That's where the war is occurring in the soul. Paul and uh, Jude also talked about the fact that there would be hedonistic men and women in the church. Paul, when he was writing to his understudy, Timothy, this is what he had to say to him in 2 Timothy 3. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And what does Paul say to Timothy? Avoid men such as these. They're going to come into your church, Timothy, but you need to avoid these men. This is what Jude had to say about the church. He was referring to ungodly men. He said, These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. Same word. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. They like to manipulate. So what does hedonism look like in the church? Well, usually uh, it looks great on Sunday. It's amazing what a tie, you know, it's almost like you make the joke, uh, would, a, would a bath and a tie make a pig look good on Sunday? Right? Okay, so uh, on Sunday, we can all dress up, we can look good. It's in the, the privacy of our homes, our privacy of our bedrooms, where we think no one is there or watching, hedonism is what the Bible calls enslavement. In, in Romans, Paul said that whatever you uh, uh, do, uh, you become a slave of. So when you sin, you become a slave of sin. It's enslavement. The, the, the world likes to use the word addiction. So what are the addictions that someone who's in the church... They're looking good on Sunday, but they're really struggling with these pleasures and gratifying them. They're going to struggle with spending and debt and stealing. They, out of greed, they want to own things even if their debt causes harm. I've unfortunately worked with those who were in a counseling session, and in the process of the counseling, we found out that uh, one of the spouses had, uh, there was one scenario, was over $100,000 in credit cards. They didn't even know they had the credit cards, much less $100,000 in, in debt. And now it's both of their debt. Porn, immorality, adultery. I must have gratification. I don't care who it hurts. Food. Food's a comfort instead of Christ. Exercise, adrenaline, pursuing thrills, looking for endorphins to satisfy and bring contentment. Power, control, popularity. 
being important rather than being important to Christ, who already has died for us. Alcohol, legal and illegal drugs, pursuing chemical peace instead of the Prince of Peace. Do these things happen in the church? Yes. Even believers struggle with these things. But James wants to make it clear that the reason why there were conflicts occurring in the church was because there were some, especially unbelievers, who were struggling with uncontrolled desires in their life. And not only was that uncontrolled desire warring against their own soul, it was causing conflict in the church. See, one of the things that we don't realize is we try to keep that desire inside. We don't want it to spill over into Sunday. We want to keep that Monday through Saturday. But what happens with sin? It eventually, we lose control of it. See, that's, that's the definition here, right? It's uncontrolled desire. And you can't control the fallout either. James brings us to the second desire of the heart that can cause conflict within a church, and that is unfulfilled desires. In chapter 2, he said, you desire things and don't have them, so you kill, and you are jealous or envious, and you can't get them, so you fight and quarrel. What James is saying is that when our internal desires are frustrated and unfulfilled, I'm going to do something externally. See, you have it. I want it. Something now is going to have to happen here so I can get it. I I can't keep it inside any longer. I'm going to have to act upon this. And notice jealousy, envy, even murder. Now think about that. James is talking to the church here. That's what's sobering about this passage. He threw out the word. Some of you even would kill in the church to gratify your frustrated desires. What does the word lust mean there? It's a, it's a same, it's, a, it's like a, a synonym of... Uh, Epithemeo, which was the strong desire that we talked about earlier. Uh, but in this context, it's, it's any strong desire, because it actually, this same word is used for those who want to be elders in the church. It's a good thing to have a strong desire to want to be an elder. But because of the context, it's a bad thing in this situation. It's a strong desire that's not good. Murder here is someone who has uh, a level of hatred. Remember Jesus said, uh, you say it's uh, thou shalt not kill. I say that when a man hates his brother, it's not just an issue of the actual action. It's, it's a hatred in the heart and could even be a point of uh, anger and hatred, uh, even suicide being a part. So what are examples in Scripture of when someone gets frustrated and unfulfilled, they're willing to do something? 
the best one is uh, King Ahab. I don't know if you remember the story of King Ahab. Him and uh, his, uh, his uh, sidekick Jezebel, known for their righteousness in Scripture, uh, they are the epitome of the ungodly couple of the century, right? Uh, and so they're king and queen of Israel. And uh, Ahab notices that at one of their uh, palaces, next to the palace is this beautiful piece of property that a, a man named Naboth, uh, Naboth uh, is, has a garden there. And now get this. King Ahab wants a vegetable garden, and he'd like it to be next to the palace. <laughs> Does that bring a tear to your eye? King Ahab wants a vegetable garden. Uh, and he goes to the man and says, I'll, I'm even willing to buy it from you. And give you an, I'll either buy it from you or give you another property. What do you say? And he says, no, this is the inherited uh, land that's given to us by God. I could never do that. So here's the king of the country. He's pouting. He's pouting in his room, and his wife comes in and says, why, are you, why is your countenance fallen? Why are you depressed? And he tells her why, and she says, I'll fix it. Clean yourself up. Uh, I'll fix it. So she comes up with a conspiracy to pay some men to invite Naboth uh, to a feast put him up near the top of the uh, table and then uh, have some men falsely accuse him of cursing God and cursing the king and then put him to death. And that's what they did. And then she came and told her hubby, hey, problem taken care of. Go get your property. Rather than saying, hey, honey, that wasn't quite right. Uh, He just goes right on and he grabs that property And then God says he's going to have his whole family wiped out through a prophet, Elijah, because of that. Notice, I want your property. I asked, didn't get it. I'm going to kill you and take it. That's envy. By definition in Scripture is when you want something that belongs to someone else. I want your spouse. Mine's a little irritable. Your children are so well behaved. Can we trade? How about the free market? You know, how about the, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, the draft is coming here. I'll put my kids in. You put yours in and let's see what happens. Uh, Envy. It starts in the heart. Discontent. And all of a sudden, what you've got, I want. And then the question is, as you dwell on it, how far are you willing to go to act on it? How far are you willing to go? And that's what James is saying. Notice what's happening in the church here. Because what you are envying in your soul is causing you to literally, with jealousy, you ask, then you still don't get it. You're frustrated. You're willing to kill to get it. And by the way, in the church, how we normally do that is slander. Gossip. See, I destroy, I kill your reputation to get something. Because you're in the way. Happens in the workplace, right? 
Someone else got the promotion. You wanted the promotion. First thing you do is we got to take that guy out. And so you not only want to take him out yourself, it's always better to have a few along with you, isn't it? So you create a little faction, right? That causes a little division, doesn't it? So I'm going to get a few folks with me who believe the way I do. And we're going to go in on this together. Unfortunately, in being in ministry for over 30 years, I've seen that happen a little more frequently than I'd like to see. A personal issue then becomes 15 people's issue just because. Joseph did the same thing, or had the same thing happen to him, right? Well, Dad likes Joseph. Gave him that coat. He has dreams. Says he's going to be bigger than that. We're going to worship him? Come on. It was jealousy that motivated them to they were actually contemplating killing Joseph, right? And then they sell him into slavery. That's a good way to have a little sibling rivalry, okay? The relationships at the reunions were a little different after that. But notice what they had to do. What did they have to do after they sold him into slavery? They had to lie to their father. That affects a relationship. His, their father is weeping and grieving for years the loss of a son who's not dead. That's where conflict comes from. Right within our own hearts. That brings us to the third way in which our hearts cause conflict, and that's selfish desires. Verse 2 says, the reason you don't have is that you don't pray. Or you pray and don't receive because you pray with the wrong motive, that of wanting to indulge your own desires. Notice, I don't pray, so the first thing is, is I don't need God, I got this handled. It's, it's all about me anyway. And then, okay, I'm not working right now, so I'm going to start praying. And then what's the only reason why I'm praying to God? It's all for me and indulging my desires. It's absolutely selfish. All they want is to indulge their own desires. So James gives us three desires. The uncontrolled desire, the frustrated and unfulfilled desire, and the selfish desire as the reasons why someone, especially who's in the church, who's a Christian pretender, that's the word we used from the last uh, message, because the, the word used in the previous passage for, he challenged them no, to no longer lie to themselves. The word to lie literally was to pretend. Stop pretending that you're a Christian. Stop it. And that's, that's, what, that's what James is saying here is, guys, be honest about what's in your heart. You have uncontrolled passions. You have these strong desires that are frustrated, and you're selfish. Then he goes on to share, why is it that that's true in their life. This next passage is the most important part of this whole, whole section. 
Why is it that people are enslaved to their desires? Isn't that a good question to ask? See, he starts this with a question of what's causing conflicts among you, but the most important question and answer is, is in verse, verse uh, 4 and 5. See, why is it that I have these desires? Why are these desires in control of my heart such that there's conflict in my life? The most important thing we need to see is right here in verse 4 and verse 5. And that brings us to our most important point here is, uh, it should be on the screen there, is spiritual adultery, choosing to befriend the world instead of God, is why pretenders desire sinful pleasures. Why do I desire these things? We know that if we desire them, it's going to cause conflict, but why? The answer is, who's your friend? Who's your friend? Notice what verse says, verse 4 says, you unfaithful wives, you adulteresses. Let me just unpack that. Again, he's talking to Jews who had a covenant relationship in the old covenant with God. He was the bridegroom and they were the bride. Now, they're in the church, but he knows they know the word picture. If you say you're a Christian, you're in a covenant relationship with Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. And what he's saying is, come on, come on, men and women that are in these churches. The reason why you're so enslaved to these desires is because... You are unfaithful to the God that you say you love. You adulteresses, you adulterous wives. Don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you suppose that Scripture speaks in vain when it says that there is a spirit in us which longs to envy? So here's the implied question in this passage. It's not there, but I I think it's implied and it fits right in with the question that's there in verse 1. The question is, as professing believers, why are you choosing to gratify your sinful desires and cause conflict in the church? And I think the implied answer that James gives us is it's because you've chosen to befriend the world which makes you an enemy of God. That's the issue. See, it's not, let's just go and see how I can control these desires a little better than I used to. The issue is, who's your friend? That's the real issue on the table. Who do you worship? Is it food? See, remember, when you, when you hurt, this is true. All, it's true in all counseling. When you hurt, where do you go for comfort? That's your God. Is it Jesus in prayer or the freezer? Or I go to the arms of someone I shouldn't. Or I need to go talk to someone that I shouldn't. Because I choose not to pursue Christ. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
And that's why point one here, the subpoint of uh, point number two is that James confronted worldliness within the church only three years, 30 years after the church began, and the church is confronting the same problem today. And that is that genuine believers cannot be a friend of God while at the same time being a friend of the world. And uh, the point there, I missed that, sorry, is to become a friend of God, a genuine believer must forsake his previous friendship to the world. Can I just say, my, my experience, my personal experience in the church is, this is what the average person struggles with. Can't I be friends with both? That's the question. Can't I be friends with both? See, notice, once you make yourself a friend of one in this equation, you become what of the other one? An enemy. So who do you want to offend in the equation? See, someone's got to get offended here. Notice what Jesus said. He, he knew this was coming. He was trying to tell his followers this very clearly. A choice has to be made. It's a line that has to be drawn. And the question is, are you and I willing to uh, draw that line and step over? See, we want to straddle that line. In America, we want to straddle the line. We want to be respected by the community while at the same time uh, being passionate about our love for Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to be persecuted. He made it very clear. Look what Jesus had to say. Uh, Actually, I'm going to share that with you in just a minute. Uh, Got got out of order there. But the second thing that I want to mention that's clear here in this passage is the Scriptures have always taught that the natural man who is a friend of the world will always have the strong desires of envy. That's what James is saying here. There's two two ways to interpret uh, uh, verse 5. There's one that uh, believes that this whole passage is talking to Christians and that God is saying, I'm jealously desiring the Holy Spirit that's in you because you're being unfaithful to me right now. That's one way. And if you have the NASB, that's what it says. They chose that uh, interpretation in verse 5. The uh, King James Version, the Geneva Version of uh, uh, Calvin, and uh, uh, also the Complete Jewish Bible, which I use here, they take a different tact. They're not saying that this, he's not talking to a, a, a Christian. He's talking to a non-Christian that you naturally have envy in you and jealousy. So it's the non-Christian who naturally has jealousy and envy in them. Isn't that what Scripture says, right? All the way from Cain and Abel, right? From the very beginning. Cain's a little envious of Abel's sacrifice. What do you do? You kill it. It's all throughout Scripture. Envy is natural in the natural man. And that's what James is saying here is, Scripture is very clear. This is natural. First ministry I was in, Got a phone call. It was uh, later in the afternoon. It was probably about 6, 7 o'clock in the summer. And a senior, 
a young man that was a part of our youth ministry, Mike, he called me and he said, can I come over now? And I could tell he was, he was crying. I said, sure, Mike. Came over and uh, we were outside the house. And he said, I, 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 I understand. See, he'd been a part of the youth group for two years, but he had not made a decision for Christ. Good kid. Every kid, every mother in the church would have loved him to be their son. Absolutely respectful, loved kids. He was the oldest of all of his siblings, took care of him, loved on him. Kid was amazing, but he was not a believer. He comes over, he's crying, and he got it. The light went on, and this was the question. Mr. Groves, is it true that if I say that the gospel is true and that the only way to be a Christian is through Jesus, then that means my mom, whom I love and adore and is not a Christian, she's going to hell. Is that true? Yes, Mike. That is true. See, he realized if I say yes to God... He was going to have to admit that where his mom was, was different. He wanted his mom's love. He respected her so much. She was an amazing woman. Absolutely amazing woman. He understood the cost of what it meant to be a Christian. He had to count the cost. If I say yes to Jesus... That means I'm going to be on a different side of the line than my mom. And if my mom asks, son, am I going to heaven and going to be with you? He knew that if he was going to be honest with his mom, the answer was no. You can imagine, in his soul, he loved his mom. He wanted to be a friend with his mom and a friend of God. And he knew there was a decision he had to make. That's why Jesus said, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy will be a member of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Just like Mike, that's the question on the table this morning for all of us. Especially those who are here who you know in your heart you've not made that decision for Christ. The question is, today who is your best friend? Really? Not what you say, because the next question is, is who's captured your heart? 
See, that's, that's verses 1 through 3. What has captured the heart of a pretender? It's all those desires. See, because Scripture says, if you love me, you'll deny those desires, and you will follow me and pursue holiness to be like him. You can't have both. And the final question is, is which friend will you choose to offend? Teenagers, when you say yes to Jesus, that may mean that that best friend that you've had for a long time may be on the other side of the line as you pray for them and as you love them. But who's going to be your best friend? Because sometimes someone else is going to have to be or become an enemy. Let's pray. Precious Father,